MSW Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now, let's get to the episode. This week, support for opening an impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives grew after former Trump aide Hope Hicks refused to answer 155 questions in a closed-door interview with the House Judiciary Committee. In response, even more members of Congress announced their support for opening an impeachment inquiry. Now over one-third of Democratic members of Congress support impeachment. Would opening an impeachment inquiry help the House obtain evidence from the Trump administration? And what would an inquiry look like anyway? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And normally I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she won't be with us this week. But this week we are going to be talking about impeachment and the opening of an impeachment inquiry, which has been the subject of intense debate. I have heard from so many of you with questions and concerns about impeachment. Uh, I have been behind the scenes talking to all sorts of people trying to get their views. And I have invited somebody on our on our podcast this week who provides a perspective that has been already very influential. And what I would ask you to do is to listen very carefully uh, because um, there's a lot of details here that are important. Impeachment does not necessarily mean that there'll be removal from office. It also doesn't necessarily mean that anything will change in the short term, but it could have an important impact on the House of Representatives' ability to obtain information from the Trump administration. Well, it is my honor uh, to uh, introduce and welcome Professor Lawrence Tribe to the podcast. He is not only a professor at Harvard Law School, but I will I have to say that when I was a law student at Yale 20 years ago, uh, he was known as the man who wrote the book on constitutional law. Um, he wrote the 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 uh, the case book that everyone read, and now he is the co-author of the book on impeachment, uh, which is it's called "To End a Presidency: The Power of Impeachment." You also um, may have seen his recent op-ed in the Washington Post talking about impeachment, which we're going to discuss today. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, uh, Professor Tribe. Thank you very much, Renato. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I want to start because uh, I, I'm going to heap even more praise on you, but I think it's a good starting point. We've heard a lot of discussion about an impeachment inquiry, and I will confess to you that when I've talked to various members of Congress in recent weeks, some of them have mentioned to me that they were particularly influenced by the fact that you had publicly said that an impeachment inquiry um, would 
uh, potentially help House Democrats and the House of Representatives more generally obtain documents and evidence. I guess as a starting point, I, I was wondering if you could explain to us what is an impeachment inquiry, just for everyone listening so they understand. Sure. An impeachment inquiry is an investigation by the House of Representatives that is formally authorized by a resolution to inquire into whether or not the president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, which are impeachable offenses. It's different from mere oversight, which Congress obviously can do with respect to executive agencies and the administration. It's different in a lot of respects, but it certainly captures the nation's attention in a way that a series of disparate investigations going in many different directions without a coherent endpoint, namely, has the president committed the kinds of abuses of power that warrant his impeachment and potential removal from office, uh, that that kind of focused investigation can trigger. I've asked for questions from our listeners. A lot of them have expressed frustration about the way in which the administration has limited the documents and the um, witnesses that have been available to the House. Um, Can you explain to us how the opening of an an impeachment inquiry might, in your view, um, improve the um, ability of Democrats uh, in the House to obtain um, documents and evidence from the White House? Well, I'd be glad to. First of all, there is a kind of narrow technical provision of the federal rules of criminal procedure. Everybody, I think, by now has heard about this Rule 6E, which protects the confidentiality of grand jury proceedings and the evidence gathered by a grand jury. Well, there's an exception written into that rule for inquiries that are preliminary to a judicial proceeding. And the Supreme Court and lower courts have made clear that by a judicial proceeding, they mean to include things like a Senate impeachment trial, so that once there is a hearing in the House of Representatives that is preliminary to a potential impeachment trial in the Senate, grand jury secrecy goes out the window as an obstacle to discovery of information. More broadly than that, courts have said in cases going back really almost two centuries to that essentially the powers of the House of Representatives to get every potential scrap of relevant evidence, including live testimony, are at their absolute apex when the House is performing its exclusive function of impeaching, that is, bringing charges against a high official of the government like the president. And without going into all the details, the fact is that in case after case, when the courts have said, no, we won't give you this piece of information or we won't allow you to compel this person's testimony, because the purposes that you have in mind are not compelling enough. In all of those cases, the court has said, but of course it would be different if this were an impeachment inquiry. 
that is a formal proceeding focused on the question, has the President of the United States so abused his power that he must be impeached by the House and tried for high crimes and misdemeanors by the Senate? As soon as you cross that line, the power of the House to demand information, to get live testimony on everything from Hope Hicks, from uh, Don McGahn, from everybody who might be relevant is over the top. And until that trigger is pulled, the power of the House of Representatives is considerably diluted and the willingness of courts to rule for the House and in particular to rule expeditiously, to put things on a fast track, that's all subordinated. So if you want to get to the whole truth and nothing but the truth as rapidly as possible, as publicly as possible, to get the nation on board with stuff that is well beyond just the Mueller report, a report that I'm sure very few people have actually read. But there's a lot beyond that. There's information about how the president violated federal campaign laws in order to become president. There's information about the emoluments clauses, the clauses designed to prevent foreign governments from corrupting the president. All of that information would come spilling out in dramatic form once an impeachment inquiry was formally convened. And that's what Speaker Pelosi has resisted doing so far. And people like me are trying to persuade her that the time has come to pull that trigger. Well, I definitely want to talk um, in a moment about about that, about your efforts to try to encourage uh, Democrats, including Speaker Pelosi, to uh, begin an impeachment inquiry. But before we do, I, there's so much that was packed in the answer you just gave, and I want to make sure that everyone listening understands uh, all, the, all of what you just said. In the beginning, you talked about grand jury information, and I, I'll just explain for our listeners that um, when you were reading the Mueller report and there was parts of it that were blacked out, the majority of the material that was blacked out was because Attorney General Barr uh, asserted that that was grand jury material. Um, I w- will uh, note that I, I've long believed that the House would be able to get um, that information regardless. I think that they have a very good argument in court that regardless of um, you know the of rule 60 they should have um, they should have access to it in any event. But I think the point you're making, Professor Tribe, is that it's explicit in the rule that uh, for grand jury secrecy there's been there was the people who created that rule sort of explicitly discussed the fact that um, the House of Representatives conducting an impeachment inquiry uh, would be an ex- an exception that would render that rule uh, not applicable to that the, the uh, United States Congress is that is that fair? That's entirely fair, and your point is also correct that the House of Representatives might succeed in persuading a court to make an exception to the grand jury secrecy rules, even if there isn't an impeachment inquiry. But there's a huge gap between the possibility of succeeding in court and the virtual certainty of succeeding in court. We are now at a point in our country where gambling is not all that attractive. Sure, you can throw the dice, hope that you get what whatever it is, double ones, double nines, uh, whatever it is, you can hope that a court will agree with you, 
But there's nothing like certitude. And that's what you get if you make this an impeachment inquiry. That gives you certitude in terms of getting the blacked out grand jury material, as well as all the other things that I've explained it gives you. I I will confess to you, Professor Tribe, that I have been um, very interested in the issue ever, not only since reading your public comments, but I'll confess that I spoke with a um, a right wing lawyer who's a friend of mine who um, is very close to the people who are litigating on behalf of President Trump, who who told me point blank that his belief was that um, the House Democrats were making a mistake by not uh, um, specifically um, citing an impeachment. He viewed that as an enumerated power and pointed to um, the um, litigation over the tax returns that uh, that in which essentially. Um, uh, Trump's counsel was um, was uh, put kind of hanging his hat on the fact that an impeachment inquiry was not had not been opened. Ever since then, I've been talking to a number of people, and it's a big impetus be, be, be between why I've had you on, why I wanted to have you on now. I, I read your book some time ago, but I think that what you're saying and the issues you're discussing to me are, are so vitally important now. And, and and I'm curious what your view is more broadly. You know, you talked a little bit about how certainly Congress is at its maximal power when it's citing an enumerated power it has. In other words, a power, just for our listeners' uh, sake, a power that is listed specifically in the Constitution like impeachment. Can you explain sort of w- w- why and how a court would view it differently um, in the case of impeachment versus, you know, oversight or some other reason why Congress might need the same information? Sure. I mean, in general, the power of Congress to get information has to be balanced against the power of the executive branch to withhold information. There are all kinds of interests on the executive side of that scale, interests in getting maximum candor from advisors who might be reluctant to talk to the president if they thought that what they had to say would be revealed, interests in the executive branch performing its functions. It's a complicated balance. But when you're striking that balance, the background against which you're striking it is a principle that the federal government in our system is a government of limited powers. When you are squarely within the heart of one of those powers, that not only tips the balance, but can absolutely toss the scale over. So that if the executive branch is pushing back against Congress's general power of oversight, it's kind of a crapshoot as to how you strike that balance. But when the legislative branch is exercising the special power that the framers thought it had to have in order to prevent the executive from going rogue, the power of impeachment, then there's nothing to balance. The power of impeachment trumps everything. And I don't mean trumps in a, you know, I'm not making a pun, but it basically swamps, although I guess that's another pun. It basically, <laughs> it basically overrides everything else. And that's the way our system works. That's why when you invoke a special explicit power that the framers thought it was indispensable for a branch to exercise in order to preserve checks and balances, you're really at the goalposts. You don't even have to, you know, make a field goal. 
What about the argument? One one argument that it has had appeal has appealed to me uh, as I've looked at this issue, and I will I'm going to be the first person to concede that I know a lot less about constitutional law than you do, which is why I'm asking the question: Is wouldn't wouldn't Congress, uh, the House, excuse me, in this case, have need these records and the evidence and the witnesses to determine whether or not to open an impeachment inquiry? In other words, wouldn't they effectively be able to cite their enumerated power of impeachment without formally opening the inquiry at this time? Well, that's an argument. And like other legal arguments, it might succeed. But if you really want to get there, you really have to open the impeachment inquiry. And in this case, there's no question about the reasonableness of doing that. There's no, not even Speaker Pelosi, nobody is really saying there is no basis to open it because if nothing else, the Mueller report made clear that we have here a president who is engaged in conduct that over a thousand former federal prosecutors, Republicans, as well as Democrats believe would have been criminal, but for the policy of the Justice Department that you do not indict a sitting president. But that policy doesn't make sense in a system where nobody is supposed to be above the law unless the other side of the equation is respected as well. And that is, even though you can't indict a sitting president, you can take evidence that the president has abused his power, committed crimes and engaged in other abuses that may or may not be standard federal crimes, if all of that evidence doesn't suffice to open an impeachment inquiry, we have basically lost the revolutionary war that I thought we won back in the 18th century. I mean, we fought a revolution, we we shed blood, and we have fought world wars in order to preserve a constitutional system in which nobody is above the law. Uh, And to give that all up because of some political calculation that we might be, you know, that Democrats might be better off in the 2020 election if they just drag this out. I mean, I think that that is just horrific. It, it, It is a violation of the whole system of our Constitution. Well, let me ask you, I, I, I want, I'll, I'll move to that in a second. I want to, before I move on to talking about impeachment more generally, because we still have a little bit of time to discuss that, one thing I do want to clear up is because I'm looking at questions from our listeners about this. I actually I told them you were going to be on and received dozens of questions. And one, I think that from what I could tell, there's some misconceptions about what starting an impeachment inquiry would do. And I just want to clear that up for people. Uh, you know, one one listener asked, does starting an impeachment inquiry limit the president's immediate power, like pardons, emergency declarations, etc.? No, the president has all the powers of his office, notwithstanding the fact that he is the subject of an impeachment inquiry. And even if that impeachment inquiry leads to the voting of articles of impeachment by a majority of the House and a trial in the Senate. While he's on trial, he has all the powers of his office. When Bill Clinton was on trial in that proceeding that was presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States, William Rehnquist at the time, he continued to issue executive orders. He had the power of pardon. He could sign legislation. 
being accused by the House of Representatives or even being found guilty by the House if it were to render a verdict about the president's conduct uh, does not limit the president's power. Being on trial in the Senate doesn't limit his power. But the moment the Senate, by a two-thirds vote, convicts him, he's removed from office. And the Senate then has another vote on whether, in addition to being removed, he should be disqualified from ever again holding a federal office. Just so we're clear as well, so what really what we're talking about here is helping the Democrats' arguments in court and potentially giving courts a reason to expedite, in other words, to go to, to proceed more quickly with the court actions that are that are that would be going on from that from the House of Representatives to enforce subpoenas against the Trump administration and other witnesses. That's part of what we're talking about. The other part really has to do with the focus and the attention of the American people. I mean, people have their own lives to lead. They've got bills to pay. They have jobs to try to, you know, they're looking for work. They're looking for better work. They're trying to take care of their kids. They're worried about basic kitchen table issues. And so they don't have time to follow dozens of separate hearings and all these crises that the president seems to be adept at creating and then eliminating, whether it's Mexican tariffs or bombing Iran or suddenly deporting a bunch of people. People don't have time to follow all of that. And it's important that Congress perform its public educative function. You know, people don't read the 480 page or whatever it is, Mueller report. They need to know what the truth is. Did a foreign adversary attack our country, violate our sovereignty, screw around with our elections? And who helped them do it and who took advantage of it and who covered it up? They need to know that. And the hearings, if they are called impeachment hearings, and if they're consolidated the way they were during the Nixon era, that will fasten the nation's attention on what's going on. And that makes a huge difference. It's not just a matter of PR. The country deserves to know in a way that impeachment hearings so denominated will enable people to know what's going on and what happened and what the stakes are for ordinary people. That's really important. It's almost as important, maybe more important in, in the larger scheme of things than the technical question of getting grand jury material or forcing Robert Mueller to testify uh, to what he found in his report or getting Don McGahn or his, his assistant or getting Hope Hicks uh, to testify without invoking some non-existent thing like absolute immunity to refuse even to say where she was sitting in the White House. Uh, the most important thing is getting it all out into the open in a way that people can focus on, understand, assimilate, and figure out. Yeah, you know, along those lines, I will just say, you know, a number of listeners asked about timing, like, well, why not wait till these appeals in July or August? And I think it seems to me part of what you're saying, Professor Tribe, is that your view is that time is of the essence. I suppose that the upcoming election has something to do with that. It has plenty to do with it. I mean, the closer we get to the election, the more people will say, why bother? We can vote him out of office or something. 
But, you know, the precedent that that would leave, saying that what this president appears to have done is perfectly okay. It's okay to invite a hostile foreign government to interfere with our elections, accept their help, and then apparently cover it up and cover up efforts to find out what happened and to prevent it from happening again. Saying that's all okay will mean that 10, 20 years from now, when our children, our grandchildren have inherited this nation, they will have a crippled country, a country in which a president can basically get away with murder. And I really don't want that to happen. I've got four grandkids. I I want the country that I leave them to be the country I've spent half a century teaching teaching about and 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 loving. I want to turn a little bit to some of the some of what you said in your book. And I have to say um and I'll and I'm going to be putting a link on Twitter when I announce the episode so you can you can look at the book for yourself and and purchase the book for yourself, but it's called To End the Presidency: The Power of Impeachment. You look at impeachment from a historical perspective as well and you you talk about some of the not only impeachment increase we've had in the past but also and and ultimately you know, impeachment and, and the, the, the two trials that we've had in the Senate. But also you talk about um, other actions that the the Congress has taken vis-a-vis presidents. And one thing I thought was interesting is that you talk about how impeachment is not a duty, it's a power, and that Congress has a number of different powers that they can use, and they they have a lot of factors that go into the judgment that they're going to make regarding whether or not to exercise the power of impeachment. I was wondering if you could explain that for our listeners. Sure. I mean, a lot of people say that when the president is believed to have committed a high crime and misdemeanor, it follows like the night, the day that he's got to be impeached and removed. And in my book, I argue that the impeachment power doesn't work in quite that mechanical and automatic a way. There are a number of impeachable offenses that don't, in the end, threaten the country as much as the trauma of removing a duly elected president would. And so some judgment has to be exercised. And I don't join those. And there are plenty of them, plenty of people who believe that since Trump has clearly committed obstruction of justice, which is a potentially impeachable offense, that he simply must be removed no matter what. Well, maybe. Certainly, at a minimum, what he's done mandates the opening of an impeachment inquiry, but that inquiry has to look at the details. How serious has have his offenses been? Do they threaten the rule of law? Do they threaten the survival of our democracy? I think those questions have to be taken seriously. The impeachment power is not to be exercised kind of lightly. And I was very reluctant to go along with those who thought that we have to start an impeachment inquiry. The whole thrust of my book is go slow, don't move too fast. But once the Mueller report came out and once it became clear that the president was entangled with foreign governments financially and otherwise, and that those entanglements might in very dramatic ways compromise our national security, it became clear to me that that caution has to give way to courage, that we can't be so cautious that we are that we are simply cowardly when it comes to preserving the republic. And I think that time has come. I think it's really important now that people put as much pressure 
on the House of Representatives as they can, and in particular on Speaker Pelosi, whose motives I don't question, uh, but as much pressure as possible to open a formal impeachment inquiry now. And any belief that that's a dangerous thing, because after all, we might not in the end remove this president, seems to me to be answered by the fact that the future is always unknowable. We can't ever be absolutely certain that what we try to do will succeed. But even if the House of Representatives reaches the conclusion that the president is guilty of serious impeachable offenses, but that McConnell and the Senate will simply not conduct a meaningful trial, even in that worst case scenario, there is an off-ramp to the House of Representatives, and I have argued that in my Washington Post op-ed, could do what it did in the Nixon case, or actually didn't even quite get around to doing, but was urged to do by the House Judiciary Committee, and that is find Richard Nixon, and in this case it would be Donald Trump, guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. Whether he is ultimately tried and convicted by the Senate is a separate matter, but if he has to wear that scarlet eye, the the impeachment word on his forehead when he runs for re-election, that certainly can't help him. And I don't think a president who is as eager to win the hearts and minds, not only of his hardcore base, but of the nation, as this guy obviously is, or else why would he be interviewed by George Stephanopoulos and and uh, and Chuck Todd and and keep defending himself publicly? I don't think a president like that really wants to be impeached. He would like to believe that if the House of Representatives concludes that he was guilty, but he avoids being convicted and removed by the Senate, that he will march triumphant into the 2020 elections. But first of all, we don't know that that's true. Secondly, it's not likely to be true because marching into an election after the House of Representatives have said, you know, that you have committed serious offenses isn't necessarily the best posture. And third, there is the question of principle and precedent. That is, whatever the consequences, we have to do the right thing. And in this case, the right thing is to open an impeachment inquiry. Uh, you know, I wanted you read my mind because I wanted to get to this Washington Post op-ed, and I'm just gonna for the for the um, sake of our listeners who may want to look it up. It, it the title of it or the the headline is "Impeached Trump, but don't necessarily try him in the Senate." And essentially, you put forth the the point that the House of Representatives could go forward with an impeachment inquiry, but ultimately could might not refer him for trial in the Senate. Uh, given that that uh, result may already be preordained. And, I, and I'm wondering if you could explain exactly how that would work. Well, the way it would work basically is, I mean, suppose you have a grand jury, you know, and, and suppose it's O.J. Simpson, and you believe that he's committed a serious murder, but you knew in advance that the jury would acquit him. Well, you could indict him and then basically not go through the pointless effort of trying him and be having him be acquitted. He would then walk out as a not a convicted murderer, but as somebody with a, a big M on his forehead. Well, similarly, if you have reached a conclusion on the basis of a full hearing where you give an opportunity to the president and his lawyers to present a defense, if you reach the conclusion based on all of that, that he has committed serious offenses, at that point, you should be ready to vote articles of impeachment, 
but you don't have to go through the motion of doing that if it's absolutely clear that it won't even result in forcing senators to take a stand on the question because they can hide behind the skirts of of Mitch McConnell, who will say, I'm not going to make you do a whole trial. Well, if that's the case, maybe you skip that pointless ritual and simply stamp him with a mark of conviction that doesn't remove him, but hangs like a very heavy albatross around his neck when he seeks re-election. You know, it's interesting. I will say just as a former prosecutor, I would not indict someone if I did not believe I had the evidence and the will to uh, proceed to trial. I do think people have a right to go to trial and test the government's allegations. But I think that shows this shows to me the important distinction between grand juries and criminal cases and an impeachment inquiry. You know, you talk about that in your book um, to end a presidency. You talk about how. Really, the process of impeachment should not be understood in a traditional criminal uh, way. And I think that the point here would be that the process of impeachment is not like indicting somebody who in a criminal case. It's really something very different. It's a political judgment. And I think you talked about one thing I found very interesting, Professor Tribe, was that you talked about how serious censure has been as a penalty in our history. You used the example of, um, excuse me, Andrew Jackson, I believe, um, and how seriously he took censure. And one thing that I find fascinating and disappointing is that Republicans haven't even come around to that. In other words, haven't said, we think that this is a horrible behavior, but we don't think it warrants removal. So we think censure um, is the right approach, which, of course, Democrats, uh, you know, advanced that view uh, during the Clinton years. Right. Censure is often a political football. In the Clinton years, the people who wanted to impeach Clinton resisted the idea of censure and even argued that it was unconstitutional for the House of Representatives to censure a sitting president. And interestingly, the main dissent on that point was written by a guy named Jerry Nadler, who now chairs the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives. What I'm proposing is not to go simply for censure, it's to go all the way. But if it turns out in a context that's very different from an ordinary criminal trial where you don't know in advance who the jurors will be and where they're not essentially invited to play politics, if it turns out that at the end of the process, you realize that it would be pointless to have a Senate trial, you don't have to have one. You can simply leave the president with the mark of Cain of a negative House conclusion. Yeah. And I, you know, one thing that I um, should should ask now is I think and is kind of a good wrap up is if that happened, um, if an impeachment inquiry was opened, if the House then um, was still running into uh, obstruction and stonewalling by the Trump administration. And this is a question from a listener, by the way. What 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 do you do next if if there's an impeachment inquiry and, and Trump continues to stonewall? What's the next step after that? Well, it- Sure, especially if he stonewalls in the face of judicial orders that he comply. That is, if the judiciary judiciary says, answer this question, do this, do that, and he says, what army is going to force me? Then you impeach him. And that's the ultimate crisis. You impeach him, and hopefully the Senate will realize that we've got a completely renegade president. Among the articles of impeachment that were voted against Richard Nixon was that he stonewalled against the impeachment powers of inquiry that belonged to the House of Representatives. 
that's the ultimate impeachable offense, simply refusing to go along with the demands, the lawful demands for evidence, whether they come from the Article One branch or the Article Three branch. You know, one thing that this all of this episode has um, brought home to a lot of our listeners is the limits and the power of Congress and of the courts uh, sometimes to enforce, whether it's a subpoena or it's an order. These are things that I think are familiar to both of us, given our training. And I'm curious what you can, what, how, what would you, what, what would you want to say to our listeners who are very disturbed by the fact that the House will issue subpoenas and they'll, there'll be a lot of stonewalling or in the face of, for example, court orders on um, things like um, how children are treated in detention, that the, um, that the courts uh, have difficulty uh, in obtaining uh, compliance by the executive branch? Well, the power of the executive branch to slow walk its compliance without the kind of open defiance that would trigger impeachment and removal is clearly a problem. It's a problem that's endemic in our system. I mean, the framers were brilliant. They put together an organized, brilliant, and carefully designed structure but ultimately it would rely on decent human beings and on their goodwill and on their character in order to work. When the American people elect a president who is fundamentally a scofflaw, a crook basically, a corrupt person who disregards the law and has no sense of decency, then we're really in trouble. And what we have to do is take greater care next time not to elect someone with those characteristics. Well, I will tell you, speaking of brilliance, I have learned a lot from you in this episode, uh, Professor Tribe. I always learn from you, but in particular, uh, not only reading your book um, and your op-ed, but also having the opportunity to question you. I hope that everyone else has done the same, and thank you very much. Thank you, Renato. I admire the work you've done. Thank you very much, Professor. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback, and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay On Topic. (laughs) 